Well, good morning again, everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, If you haven't met me, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor at Cross of Life, and we're in the middle of a sermon series on the minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's that section of the Old Testament you don't usually get to, or at least when you start reading, you start getting very frustrated with because it seems very contextual. Um, So we've been digging into these books of the Bible for the last couple weeks, and we will for another couple weeks. This week, we're going into the book of Amos. If you've been with us for the whole series, you know that the minor prophets have a way of really getting in your personal space. Uh, They are not afraid to call us out for the sins that we commit. And even though we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who washes away those sins and makes us right with the Father, it's not always a comfortable thing to be poked and prodded where we have sin in our life, right? And I think that's one of the reasons that many people avoid reading the minor prophets, They just don't want to feel uncomfortable. Because if you take the minor prophets seriously, they they make you squirm a little bit in your seat. Uh, They lead you on the drive home with a less rosy view of yourself. So oftentimes people avoid them, or at least avoid the content that's in them. Now I say all that for two reasons. First of all, the book of Amos is heavy law. Maybe you know this. We have two concepts, the law and the gospel. Hear me teach about this, right? The law is what God demands of our lives. It's what shows us our sin because we're not living up to it. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has taken away our failure, taken away our sin, and made us right with God. The book of Amos is heavy on the law side. In fact, if you would read the 146 verses of the book of Amos, you would find that only five of them contain gospel promises. Five out of 146 verses in this book contain gospel promises. So if you're here for the first time, I want you to realize that not every book of the Bible is like this. The main message of the scriptures is that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That doesn't mean we should ignore books like this. It means we should dig into these books and understand what God says about the law. But I also don't want you to lose the gospel in a book that is heavy law like this. It's going to make you uncomfortable. So don't forget that you have a Savior who is going to make you eternally comfortable by taking away your sin. Uh, But the second reason I say it is because I don't want you to be like Amaziah. Remember Amaziah? If you read the book of Amos with us this week, uh, you ran into him in chapter 7. I'll just read the the the, uh, interaction again for you. It says, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Do not prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. See, when Amaziah ran into Amos and his message, he had two reactions. The first of those was, That's just your opinion. Did you hear it when when Amaziah went to Jeroboam? He said, this is what Amos is saying. 
Now, normally when a prophet speaks, the way properly to talk about what they're saying is, this is what the Lord says, because the prophets would speak directly from God. But when Amaziah comes to Jeroboam, he makes that slight turn and says, this is what Amos is saying. This is his opinion. And the second thing he does is say, stop preaching. Go back to Judah, you seer. Earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. We don't want to hear it here. When you come up against a tough message in the scripture, you have a temptation to be like Amaziah. To say, oh, that's just his opinion. That's interesting, but it doesn't really apply to my life. Or to completely tune it out and let it fly right past your face. Please don't let that happen today. So with that being said, let's dig into the book of Amos. Uh, Amos is arguably the earliest of the prophets. I say arguably because if you remember last week, we said we don't really know when Joel was written exactly. So it's possible that Joel is older than Amos, but we do know for a fact when Amos wrote, because in the very first verses of the book, he says, I was writing during the reign of King Jeroboam and after an earthquake, which we also have records of a great earthquake that happened in 750 BC. Um, So we know exactly when Amos wrote. He was probably the first of the prophets, even before Isaiah and Jeremiah, some of the major prophets. And he wrote during the 8th century, like I said. During the 8th century, in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, remember we had the two kingdoms that were split. You can kind of see it on the map here. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Remember we thought like U.S. Civil War, the north and the south. In the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, King Jeroboam II was reigning. And King Jeroboam, by at least all outward appearances, was a really good king. He was increasing the land of, king, of the kingdom of Israel, and the wealth of the kingdom of Israel was increasing greatly. People were very wealthy at this time. But the problem was, Jeroboam II wasn't a particularly faithful man to the God of Israel. Uh, if you see those little arrows there, Dan and Bethel, those were places where the northern kingdom of Israel had set up temples. Now, back up a little bit. Um, God had prescribed for his people, you worship at the temple in Jerusalem. That is the place where my presence resides. It is the only place to properly worship. Anywhere else is not true worship. But the northern kingdom ignored that and said, okay, well, we'll set up uh, some temples at Bethel and Dan at the northern tip of our kingdom and the southern tip of our kingdom because we want to make it easy for our people to get to their worship space. Maybe if you put it in like a Mississauga context. If you want to go shopping and you don't want to drive all the way down to square one, maybe you, if you live in like Caledon or Brampton, you want to get a mall that's closer to North Mississauga or maybe Southern Brampton. You don't want to go all the way down. So you would stop at Bethel or maybe you would even just go up to Dan to worship rather than go to Jerusalem. And of course, God was not okay with this. This wasn't proper worship. Now God actually lays out for the nation of Israel why this is so bad. And he does it in a really interesting way. Um, He starts the book of Amos by laying out judgments on each of the nations around Israel. You can see some of them highlighted on the map behind me. Um, Damascus is that turquoise area. Ammon is below that. The purple is Moab. On the left side of your screen, the red is Gaza. He lists all these places and says, these are all terrible places where terrible things are happening. And here's my judgment against them. Uh, But as he does that, he sort of circles around Israel until the seventh of his judgments, which he levels against Israel itself. And that judgment is four times longer than any of the judgments he gives against any of the other nations. So why does he do that? Well, as you remember from the children's message, because those were his people. 
Uh, He says at the beginning of chapter 3, Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. That word chosen is like an intimate knowledge. Even though it's a word that would be used to talk about the relationship a husband and a wife have. God says, you are so precious to me. We have this intimate relationship. You are my people and I am your God. And yeah, everybody else is doing bad stuff and you look like them, but I'm more concerned with you. I'm more concerned with with your behavior because you are my people. Like I said to the kids, if you're a parent and you have your, fr- your kids have their friends come over and they're disobedient, you're going to be more concerned about your kids' disobedience than their friends' disobedience, right? Because those friends get to go home, they're their parents' problem. But for you, when your child disobeys against you, that's not just about the broken rule. It's about the relationship, isn't it? Because they have to stay in your house and you have to put them to bed that night. And you have to wake up with them tomorrow. And so the the relationship matters because at the end of the day, the behavior is an outpouring of what the relationship is. If you're a really obedient child, it's because they have a really good relationship with their parents, right? They respect their parents. They love their parents. Very often, those children who are very disobedient don't have that kind of relationship with their parents. And so God says, you are disobeying me, Israel, and you are my people. And so we have to deal with this. So what were they doing? Uh, Well, if you would pick up any average commentary on the book of Amos, the commentator would probably tell you that Amos is a book about social justice. Uh, They would say it's about the marginalized and the poor and the immigrants and how we need to provide for them and not trample them and not take advantage of them. And that would be right. God is intensely concerned with justice especially for the marginalized, the oppressed, and the poor. And I'll just give you three examples of this, how much God cares about justice. Um, First of all, 2 Kings 5, you remember the story of Naaman? Uh, Naaman was a commander of the uh, the army of Aram, and he had leprosy. And he heard that prophet Elijah in Israel was able to heal. So he takes a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of letters of recommendation, brings them to the king of Israel and says, I hear you have a prophet and I want to get healed. Here's the cash. And you remember what the king of Israel does? He tears his clothes because his God's not like that. See, every other God in all the other religions at that time was in bed with power, could be bought off. And therefore, the poor had no chance of getting in with the other gods, but not the God of Israel. The God of Israel identified with the poor and the marginalized. He was primarily concerned with the poor and the marginalized. He would not get bought off by the rich so the king of Israel said, our God's not like that. Maybe you remember Jesus when he was talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, where he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the far more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You understand what he's saying? Saying no one is saved by their works. But you Pharisees, if you really wanted to be saved by your works, by your good deeds, you would be primarily concerned with the most important parts of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Far more than what you give to your church, how do you treat other people? One more example, 
beginning of the book of James, James writes this, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. James essentially says, if you're a Christian, and you are a poor Christian, you don't have a lot of resources, you should see that as a blessing, that God has put you in that position. Because that means you get to fully and freely rely on God to provide for you at all times and receive his gifts. But if you are a rich Christian, you should see that as humiliation. That you were put in such a position to have that kind of temptation regularly available to you and all the responsibility to take that extreme wealth and use it to benefit other people. God totally flips our narrative on its head, right? He's always concerned with justice. And maybe that makes some of us a little bit uncomfortable, right? Like, if I were to put it in a sentence, I would say one identifier of the heart changed by, the, by grace is doing justice to the poor. If you have a heart changed by grace, you will do justice to the poor. Some of us look at our lives and I don't know if we do that all that often. It's intensely important to God. But if you were to say the book of Amos is just about social justice, you would miss the main point of what God is teaching through Amos. So as you read through the book of Amos, you notice that justice and worship are intimately tied together in the book of Amos. A perfect example of this would be in chapter 5, where God goes on a little uh, section where he talks about the different things that they're doing wrong, right? And at the beginning, he says, seek me and live. And then later in verse 14, he says, seek good, not evil, that you may live. He talks about living in connection to both his worship and the way you treat other people. These two things are intimately tied. Now, why are they intimately tied? They're intimately tied because really when you do justice to the poor, most people do it for one of two reasons. I'll call them the liberal reason and the conservative reason. Uh, The liberal reason to do good to the poor is because it looks good, right? You can post on your social media about how you're an advocate or you're an ally for all these groups and you can make yourself look good for all the social justice that you do. It's a selfish motive. But the conservative way of doing social justice is out of obligation, right? Well, I have to do this because God said that that's what justice is, so I suppose I'll be nice to people, but we never go as far as God would. We hold back, do the bare minimum, and God is not pleased with that either. Most people go at social justice in one of those two ways. The only way, though, to do it correctly is to first orient your heart towards God in the way that he calls us to. Just as an example of this, this microphone that I'm wearing is really expensive, but absolutely useless if it's not tuned to the same channel as the receiver back there. Otherwise, it's just a fancy paperweight. But if it's tuned to the right channel, to the receiver back there, then you can hear my voice clearly. The voice can go into the computer and out through the internet so that who knows how many people will hear it. It's an amazing tool. God says the same thing is true about the human heart. As you do justice, you only do it right when you are tuned to your Father's heart. When your worship when the operating principle that you uh, run your life by is his grace. So what the book of Amos focuses on is primarily Israel's worship. Because God says that the root of your problem of injustice is that you don't actually worship me. And he uh, identifies four different ways that their worship is warped. You know what it means to be warped, right? If you have a piece of wood and it's bent, 
It's a pretty useless piece of wood, right? It's a warped piece of wood. Well, their worship was warped. It looked like worship, but it was bent. It was not right. And God identifies four different ways. And so we're going to walk through those four different ways that they had warped worship. And what I would love for you to do as, as, is as we go through these things, to examine your own heart and say, is this a way in which my worship of God is warped? All right? So the first way is by worshiping something other than God. Worshiping something other than God. And um, we see this in chapter four, when Amos says through, uh, God says through Amos, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Remember Bethel was that place where the, I guess you could call it the fake temple was at the southern tip of the northern kingdom. God says, when you go there, you're sinning. Why? Because at Bethel, there was a golden calf that was set up as the worship object for that temple. They weren't actually worshiping God. They were pretending to worship God while worshiping this golden calf. And among the, and us, besides the golden calf, they also had many other gods that they had pulled from the foreign nations around them. And you might think to yourself, okay, that seems bad, but uh, we don't have golden calves set up in the lobby of our church. We don't have little shrines in our house with little uh, idols that we worship. How is this applicable to us? Well, the concept of idolatry is not just contained in actually worshiping images of wood or stone or whatever. It is whenever your heart is oriented towards something that it considers to be the ultimate thing. To illustrate this, uh, I want you to think back to the first book in the Harry Potter series, or maybe you watched the movie. Uh, Harry finds a mirror in one of the old dusty rooms of Hogwarts, and he looks in the mirror, and in the mirror he sees his parents. Now, this is amazing because his parents died when he was an infant. But in the mirror, he can see them smiling at him, putting their arm around him, and warms his heart. So he goes and finds his friend Ron, tells Ron to come look in the mirror, expecting that Ron is also going to see his parents. But when Ron looks in the mirror, he sees himself as a sports champion. It's only when later Harry has it explained to him that the mirror of Arisid shows you the deepest desire of your heart, that he understands what was happening. And he's told that people would actually waste away looking at the mirror of Erised, and that's why it's hidden in the dungeons of Hogwarts. What's the deepest desire of your heart? If you looked in the mirror of Erised, what would you see? Would you see a happy family? Would you see an intact family? Would you see a happy marriage? Would you see a marriage at all? Would you see obedient children? Maybe financial security? Would you see yourself ascending the ladder in your job? Would you see lots of people around you who like you or at least listen to you because you have influence over them? Would you look and see yourself healthy? Would you look and see yourself living a certain lifestyle? What would you see if you looked in the mirror of Erised? That's your idol. Could it be that when we come to church, we pay lip service to God, but when we walk out the door for the other 167 hours of our life, we worship something else? The second way that they had warped worship was by worshiping the true God only in action. So you see this in that same section from chapter 4. He says, go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. 
Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Excuse me. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. So it's obvious there was a lot of religious activity happening, but God was not pleased with it. And commentators will suggest two reasons why he wasn't pleased with it. Um, The first of those is, you can see right in this verse, that he sees it all as boastful. They're doing religious activity for the sake of doing religious activity, to look good, right? Could that be how we operate? Could it be that we feel ourselves to be good Christians because of the amount of hours we volunteer or the amount of time we spend in God's word or the way that we speak to other people or the fact that we haven't fallen into a certain sin or that we do good things? That's all religious activity that does not define our relationship with God, but very often we feel like it should, right? The second suggestion that commentators will give is that in this long list of worship rituals, there's one that's conspicuously missing. And that's the sin offering. Part of the worship life of the Old Testament church was that they would perform this ritual where they would kill a lamb or a goat as a symbolic representation of their sin being paid for with that lamb or goat's life. And so they were doing a whole lot of religious activity, but their religious activity did not include repentance. Sure, we'll give money to church and look good as we give money to church and and we'll perform all the rituals, but I mean, I'm not going to admit that I'm really that bad of a person. Now, I talked a whole lot last week about repentance, so if you want more on repentance, go and listen to last week's sermon, but I'll just ask you this. Is the primary activity you do as a Christian, the primary way you exercise your faith, repentance? Or do you think of of your Christian life defined by something else? The third way they had warped worship was worshiping something that claims to be the true God, but isn't. From chapter 5, Amos says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? pitch dark without a ray of brightness. Um, Now, this requires a little bit more explanation. Uh, The day of the Lord was kind of a colloquialism, and we still use it today to talk about a day that God is going to very obviously act. So we talk about it when we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. That was the day of the Lord. Or we talk about it in the future when Jesus is going to come back and bring us to be in heaven with him is the day of the Lord. Uh, But it seemed that at this time, that phrase, the day of the Lord, was used far more commonly than even we use it today. It would be just kind of the colloquialism you would say about, well, God is going to act soon. And it sure seemed like the people at Amos' time were saying, the day of the Lord is coming and that's going to be awesome because God's going to do some really good things for us. He's going to bless us. He's going to take care of us. Maybe he's going to get rid of all these nations from around us. But Amos says, you got it all wrong. The day of the Lord is coming for you and it will not be bright. It will not be happy. It will be darkness, pitch darkness. Because of your sin, because of your unrepentant hearts. Essentially, the kingdom of Israel at this time had a view of God that was not a true view of God. But it wasn't that they weren't close, right? I mean, the day of the Lord very often does bring blessing for his people. So, how do we apply this to today? Well, this happens, I think, most often when people have a two dimensional view of God, 
Like they understand something about God, but they don't understand the full scope of that aspect of God's personality or his activity. I mean, you know this too, right? If, as people get to know you, maybe if you're, you have a new friend or you're in a new relationship or you're seeing some family that you haven't seen for a long time, you know that they don't really understand you, right? There are parts of your personality that, that aren't coming through, obviously. You're a complex person and you would love if people would recognize that you're a complex person. That you aren't as simple as this is what you like and this is what you don't like. Um, I remember uh, a couple of years ago when I came here for soccer camp, before I was a, a pastor, I purchased a Toronto Raptors t-shirt. And uh, I didn't bring enough clothes along on that trip, so I had to wear the Toronto Raptors t-shirt a couple days. And uh, somebody said, well, you must really love the Raptors. They must be your favorite team. And I like the Raptors, but I didn't like them that much, right? It's just sports. See, I didn't like that, just that, tiny little thing that has nothing to do with who I actually am was being gotten wrong. But God's the same way. He doesn't want you to have a simplistic two-dimensional view of him. He wants you to understand all of who he is. So a practical way this might happen is if someone says, you know, God is love, which is true. But what does love look like? What is God's definition of love? Or someone might say, God is accepting of all people, which is true. But on what basis is he accepting of all people? Somebody might say, God is in control, which is true, but control for what? What is his end game? Somebody might say, God is always with us, which is true, but in what form is he with us? Under what means is he with us? See, if you have a two-dimensional view of God, you might end up, like the Israelites, expecting something but not actually getting it because that's not the true God. As you think about God, how full is your understanding of God? To some extent, we will never have a full understanding of God, but we can grow in that by being in the scriptures, by being here to hear his word, by taking time to meditate on it in prayer. We can learn about who God is and understand him fully. It seemed that the people at this time were not interested in that. They were just interested in the God who sort of made everything okay and he'll fix everything someday and that's good enough for us. Let's dig into who God is. Last way then that they had warped worship. Worshiping the true God, but not as top priority. Worshiping the true God, but not as top priority. Um, we get that from chapter 8. Amos says, Hear this, you who trampled the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? See, the new moon festival and the Sabbath day were part of the regular worship life of the nation of Israel at that time, but it seemed that these people saw those things as more of an obligation or something that was getting in the way of what they really wanted to do, which at least from the text here tells us was economic activity. They wanted to get out and sell and market and buy and get into the marketplace. Worship to them was something you did, but it wasn't the top priority in your life. Is that possibly something that we struggle with? Is it possible that we put economic activity before worship? Is it possible that we would have a job that would keep us away from God's house on Sunday morning? Is it possible that take it out of the Sunday morning gathering, that we might have a schedule that doesn't allow us time to be in God's word regularly, either in a personal way with devotional life or in a life group with other Christians? Is the word of God your top priority? 
I heard a story recently about a woman who had not come to church for a couple of weeks, so her pastor called her. And she said, oh, pastor, I, I haven't been able to come to worship because my doctor said it's not safe to come to worship because of the pandemic. And so the pastor, of course, with compassion in his heart says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, can we get you groceries or, or whatever essentials you need? We have people who are willing to do that. And the woman said, uh, no, that's fine. I've been going out to get my groceries and my essentials. What's more essential? God's word or groceries? Something will make you live for another day or maybe a week. The other one will make you live forever. And I'm not particularly picking on those of you who are watching online because I know many of you who are watching online and I know why you're not in worship. And you're actually here watching online, which means you do care about God's word. But just take it out of the COVID-19 sense and into a broader context. What is it that we prioritize above God's word in our life? What is that thing that we're not willing to give up in order to be with God and God's people and with his word. You know, the parable I read from Jesus helps us understand how foolish sometimes our excuses are. Right? The, the master, he makes this huge banquet and he sends out his servant to invite the people and the people just have absolutely atrocious excuses, don't they? Yeah, I bought a field recently and I need to go check it out. As if you didn't check the field out before you bought it. Uh, yeah, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go try them out as if they're not going to be alive tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I just got married, so I can't come. As if the guy who's throwing like the most lavish banquet in the history of the world doesn't have space for your wife. Our excuses are often very foolish and God doesn't stand for it. Our priority must be, number one, his word. Well, this was the way they worshipped, and God was not pleased with it. Uh, actually, in chapter 5, he says this. He says, I hate, no, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Could you imagine? You come here on a Sunday morning... And there's preaching and there's music and, and God says, this is a stench to me. That's what he would say if our worship is warped. But he wouldn't stop there. In fact, Amos tells us in chapter 8, verse 11, that God says, the days are coming when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. If that doesn't terrify you, I don't know what, does, what would. God says, if you don't care about my word, if it's not that important to you, I'll take it away. And we like to think of God as sort of the all the time gracious, just continually giving, 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 giving God. And that's true. He is a gracious God. He's also not going to be taken advantage of. If we don't care to hear his word, he will take it away. He took it away from a nation that he had called his own, that were his people, his special possession, the ones he had chosen that he intimately knew and intimately loved and he was willing to take it away from them. Why wouldn't he take it away from us? We found out recently that he can, right? In the flash of one day or maybe one week, we were suddenly not here anymore worshiping. 
we were not able to gather together as Christians. We were watching worship online, and that was a wonderful thing for the time being to still be able to hear God's word. But it was a sign, right? It was God saying, don't take my word and put it second priority. Don't make worship that you do, worship of me, something that you do just out of obligation. Make it most important. Now, at this point, you might be a little bit depressed. Because as you read the things about the way that their worship was warped, you probably, if you're like me, identify with at least one, maybe multiple of those ways that worship can be warped. So what's the answer? Well, in those last five verses of the book, God gives us his gospel promises. And so let's examine those. He says, In that day... I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and I will restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. God says through Amos, your warped worship is a stench to me and I'm going to let a nation come in and absolutely destroy you, which the Assyrians did. And God had every right at that point to say, you know what, the whole Israel thing, chosen people of God thing, that was sort of a failed project, so uh, we're just going to give up on that and try something different. But he doesn't. He says, they will be destroyed, but I will restore their ruins. I will rebuild their city in the way that David had it built. But not a, a contained place on the ground, not a temple in one place, but a place where all people, even people from Edom, who aren't natural-born Israelites, can worship. So that the church cannot just be one ethnic group, one location, but it can be all over the earth. Despite these people's wickedness and disobedience to me, I will be gracious and give them more blessing than they could possibly deserve. And we know this is true because in Acts 15, James, the same guy who wrote that thing about how rich believers should glory in their humiliation and poor believers should glory in their blessing. That same guy quoted these verses when the church was figuring out that because Jesus came and died and rose again and ascended into heaven, that the church was now not just Jewish, but it was Gentile included as well. He quoted those words. Amos continues, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So God says the days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. Now that analogy maybe is a lost on us. We're not sort of a, an agrarian society. But what Amos is trying to say is uh, there is going to be such a large harvest of God bringing people into the church because of the work that he is going to do as he rebuilds a kingdom that has thrown away its birthright. That if a harvester were to go out and try to bring in all the crop, it would take him so long that by the time he was done, the plowman would be coming to plow for the next year's crops. God says that happens, right? This little nation who threw away God's birthright, 
by God's grace, when he rebuilt the house of David through David's son, who was David's Lord, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, the church grew and grew and grew until now it is now millions strong and we will see hundreds of millions even more in heaven with us someday. The harvest is great because of God's grace. Not because those people worshiped well, because God is gracious. And in that, we understand something about worship. Uh, We understand that worship is not something God requires in order for us to receive his blessing. He gave his blessing to his people and to generations after them, not because they were good at worship, but in fact, in spite of the fact that they were bad at worship. So worship must have a different purpose. Worship's purpose is to conform your heart to your father's heart. To look in the mirror of Erised and see God. And to know that no matter what happens out those doors, no matter what people say about you, do to you, take from you, that you have the deepest desire of your heart. That'll change you. That'll lead you to justice. It reminds me of a woman. She had um, a, an old brooch that she had received from her mother, who had received it from her grandmother, and so on and so forth, and passed down for generations. But the woman didn't really wear the brooch because it wasn't all that pretty in her opinion. Uh, but one day she brought it into the, into the jeweler, and the jeweler took out his little eyeglass thingy. I don't know what that's called. But he started to look at the brooch and, and quickly realized this was a one-of-a-kind brooch worth tens of thousands of dollars. And he let the woman know she was floored. She didn't know that it was worth that much. But it quickly changed the way that she lived her life. It wasn't that she possessed it, or at, had, at one time did not possess it and then possessed it. She always had it. And it wasn't that it gained value. It always had the same value. She just didn't recognize it. When she recognized that she lived her life differently. You get where I'm going with this? When you come into worship... I suppose I'm the jeweler in this situation. I can show you the aspects of the amazing message of the gospel and show you that what you have, what you have always possessed, what has been in your possession from the moment God spoke to you, from the moment you were baptized, is so valuable that it will change how you live your life. God's message of grace is completely unique. It was completely unique in Amos' time. It's completely unique now. Every other worldview, every other religion will ask you to do something in worship in order to gain blessing. If you're a Muslim, you have to observe the daily prayers. If you are, um, if you are a Roman Catholic, you have to go to Mass. Uh, if, if you're not particularly religious, you have to say the right words and post the right things and do the right things in order to be accepted by the community. But God's gospel is something, something completely different. It says God has given you all the grace that you need all the acceptance that you need, all the love, all the acknowledgement that you need. He has wiped away your sins and made you right in God's eyes by the death of Jesus on the cross. Now you get to examine the brooch. And I pray that you do regularly. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you've given us this amazing gift of the gospel in word and sacrament. The beautiful treasure that from a hundred different angles looks different and yet always shines so brightly and beautifully. We ask that you would show it to us again and again and again and that you would help us work for for a life of worship that puts it at the center. 
Our hearts are pulled in many different directions by all the temptations around us, all the good things that you have given us that want to become ultimate things. We ask that you stop Satan and our sinful nature's temptations towards those things, Lord Jesus. Amen.